<laughs> I actually like the teaser of this episode. No, I really do. Worf doesn't show up for his duty roster. So they're like, okay, call in Worf. Worf doesn't respond. First reaction, within seconds, something's wrong. Security! And they immediately go to his quarters to figure out what's wrong. I, I know that it's it's kind of strange that I have to point out how correct that is, but it's so common that they won't do that. They'll just be like, yeah, it's whatever. No, 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 no. This is extremely non-wharf behavior. So them being on top of this is actually completely correct. Also, why aren't there any fire suppressant things going off? I mean, you remember up the long ladder, right? I don't blame you if you don't. I try not to remember it every day. But but the relevant point is, obviously, he just was able to turn off computer, disable a fire suppression system. Okay. So they call back to Birthright. Cool. And they also... Okay, this is going to be a hard episode to talk about, because this is an episode all about faith and religion and politics. Yeah, that's pretty much the trifecta, ain't it? <clears throat> all I ask, as usual, from the comments section, is civility. <laughs> That's really what it boils down to. And I don't mean fake civility. I mean actual, you know, being respectful and decent and blah, blah, blah. <sighs> so, Worf says he has no faith. Yeah, okay, I can believe that up to this point. He probably hasn't. I mean, why would he, after all? I mean, think about the way he was raised. He was raised human in Starfleet, and they're kind of uh, not into that. You know, the wormhole aliens, not the prophets, right? I mean, this is a pretty common topic. So it makes sense. It's also a uh, nice acknowledgement. It also, I like the fact that Picard comes to him and endorses, even encourages him, to go pursue his faith. I like that. I also like how it can't interfere with his frickin' job. The moment you step foot back on this ship, you're doing your job, mister. Yes, sir. He is right on both of those accounts, and I think that's a fantastic take uh, to walk away from it. I should probably mention something, by the way. Um, this episode, well, it's a Ronald D. Moore episode. Shocker, I know, Ronald D. Moore writing a Klingon episode. Uh, but the original was by James E. Brooks. Now, the original treatise was very different from this. It was actually all about, uh, Kalis wasn't in the story at all, just to give you an idea. And it was all about internecine politics amongst the clerics and how they were infighting and blah, blah, blah. So most of the structure of the episode actually comes from Moore. And you can kind of tell this, this does have his fingerprints all over it. I will also say, though, that this, this leads to some interesting thoughts. First of all, like I mentioned earlier, Worf having no faith up until now. Now, this is a huge difference. Um, I actually put up a quote here. This is from an episode that will be coming out, I think, in about two months from your guys' perspective that I've already done from my perspective because I do the DS9 stuff before I do the TNG stuff. So, Anyways, <clears throat> and I quote, The only real question is whether you believe in the legend of Davy Crockett or not. If you do, then there should be no doubt in your mind that he died a hero's death. If you do not believe in the legend, then he was just a man, and it does not matter how he died. That is the episode Once More Into the Breach, or Once More Into the Breach, or whatever it is, Season 7. It's a good episode, actually. Surprisingly good. But, of course, anything with Martok tends to be good, and Kor is there, and Worf is there. I bring that up, though, because that's where Worf will be in about eight years' time from this point. Actually, it's closer to five, I think. A while, right? That's where Worf is going to eventually end up. 
And I also talk quite a few times, because it keeps coming up over the DS9 stuff, about the difference between blind faith and specific faith. And I might be misusing my terms because it's been a little bit. The idea is it's about whether your faith is front-loaded or back-loaded. In short, if I have faith in Kalos, and then Kalos fulfills that faith, that's blind faith, because the faith comes first and then the result comes second, or lack of result as the case may be. But that's still a result. Specific faith is something happens and now I believe in it. And you can see how these two things are very different from each other in the way they are approached. And this, I think, helps to explain a lot of uh, variance. And you notice I keep using the word faith on purpose, not religion. Religion's an organization. A religion is a, is, is a set of rules and, and bylaws and codified stuff. That's connected to faith, but not directly. Your individual faith is whatever you specifically have faith in, whether pre or post, depending on your own perspective. Whether you choose to then become part of a religion or not may or may not have anything to do with what you specifically have faith in or believe in. I actually know people personally, no names will be named as usual, who actually go to churches, for example, or attend ceremony, ceremonies, not because they believe in the stuff that's being presented, but just because they like the, the togetherness of it. You know, they like hanging out with what is effectively a pseudo-neighborhood, right? Or some, uh, I know one person who goes because of family. They go to support their family. Not as a, they're being dragged to something they don't like, more as a, they are encouraging their family members' faith kind of a thing. There's also a lot less wholesome ways to digest these, but let's not get into that too much. The point here being that you can kind of see the variance here, and this is why this is so important for Worf's faith and what he specifically believes, or rather doesn't, and the arc he'll be going on for the sake of several future episodes. I mean, the Sword of Kaelas is literally an episode name that'll be coming up in uh, Season 4, I believe, of DS9. Something like that. Anywho, <clears throat> so faith. Okay, awesome. Uh, before I talk more about that, I want to mention something. I don't remember the original series. We saw Kaelas in that, and... Uh, um... Uh... <laughs> This is what Disney must feel when Song of the South is brought up. Seriously, there's, there's like, no connection there. There's no similarities, even. It's, he, he, Kalis is literally brought in as a representation of one of the most evil people in history. Alongside Colonel Green, for God's sakes. That's the level of evil we're talking about. Colonel Green, who, by the way, is actually also fleshed out in, in Star Trek lore as someone who's atrociously evil. Whereas Kalis is this dude. Anyways, <clears throat> he, so Kalis shows up, yay, Kalis clone, and, oh yeah, spoilers, and he shows up and he talks about, and I just wanted to mention this very briefly, this is another good example of a tale. I took one of my hairs and I put it in the lava, and then I put it in the water and it became a sword. No, it didn't. <laughs> that's, that's nonsense, that's not how that works. That's a tale. That's, that's not a story. Just like one of the most clear-cut examples I could ever give. I'm not sure the point of that tale in particular. Maybe it's to show he was strong. I don't know. Anyways. <clears throat> so this then leads to a really interesting point where he goes to Worf and he allows Worf to scan him. And Worf says, well, you're a Klingon. That's all I got. And then Kalis is like, yeah, so why don't you believe it's me? 
Worf is like, well, because this is the age of cynicism, where we are trained because of the fact that we have interacted with so many people who are liars or deceivers, thanks to the process of escalation, who have taken advantage of trust and, and the very nature of how someone could be taken at their word, and have abused that to the point where now we are programmed to the point where we have to automatically assume the worst in any given situation. No, really, that's where we're at in real life. And that's the attitude that Worf shows. And it makes sense. No, seriously, hear me out for a second. I want you to imagine that you're walking on... Okay, that's a bad example. Um, I want you to imagine that you encounter someone who claims to be... Uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a really good analogy here that doesn't touch on an actual real-life religious topic. Um, uh, screw it, Q. You see someone on the street and they claim to be Q. Now, what's your reaction going to be to that initially? Real question. I don't know what mine would be. To ignore them. <laughs> because that's probably, statistically speaking, and analyzing that situation, that's probably something I don't want to be a part of. If they push the matter, then I will assume this is some kind of charade or play or cosplay thing. Nothing really overtly malicious, just something that's being done in character, so to speak. So, okay, sure, hi, Q. After that, if they continue to push and just keep trying to press this element, I'll either think they're really committed to the gag, at which point I will start to assume there's cameras on me somewhere. It would take like 15 more steps before I even consider that that's actually Q. How about you guys? Now, I bring that up. You might be thinking, well, it's easy to determine. Just ask them to do something. At what point would it occur to you to sincerely ask that question? At what point would you think, oh, well, maybe they actually are, even begin to entertain the thought and therefore be willing to ask the question? Now, as I said, I, I, I gave my opinion on why that is. It is because, in my opinion, that too many people across too much era has done too many things to abuse trust. This is a very easy concept to explain, but I want to explain this very briefly because some people look at me weird when I talk about this. You bring a bunch of donuts to work every day, okay? You just, you, it's a box of donuts. You put it out, and the, I actually know someone who did this, by the way. This is a real story. This isn't made up. Um, he would bring it in every day, put it in the break room, cool. And by the, say, just a little bit after lunch break, they'd all be gone. Now, that's fine until people started saying, man, I wish I could get some of those donuts. And they'd be like, wait, what? Turns out, there was actually a person in the office who was stealing all of them. Just taking, like, I say all of them, like 90% of them. Bagging them up and then taking them home. Now, that's wrong, just to put it bluntly. But you could see how what is effectively the honor system can be abused. Because all that is required to abuse the honor system is one person. One bad apple, as the saying goes, can spoil the whole batch. So because that one person was doing that crap, he stopped bringing in the donuts. And now everyone doesn't get don't, well, free donuts as a consequence of this one person's abusing trust. So it's very logical and understandable. And that's, again, that's a real story, and that's extremely small scale. But it's very understandable, isn't it? Because that's what happens constantly all across the globe at every level. At the government. Why do you think government is such a thing that we look at now as an automatic antagonistic force? 
why we well, why when we hear the word politician we think in negative connotations or how about lawyer right these things are all because of systemic abuse of trust not by the entire category but by individuals now i know we could argue the specifics of who is bad and where and how but you get the point it doesn't take a group to ruin things for everyone it may be a group <laughs> Which makes things even worse, really, when you think about it. So, in other words, I know this is a really long discussion, but this kind of gets back to Worf's point. He has just met Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, by the way, in the original, excuse me, in the second draft, which I think is actually the third draft of the story, uh, Kalis w was Christ. He was just straight up Jesus Christ. And they're like, okay, guys, we, we can't do this. So they toned it back a little bit. Now they're like, okay, well, now he's not literally Jesus Christ, but now he's metaphorically, can you tone it back a little bit? Okay, okay. And this is when Moore really went to task on it and got the episode we got. Just Anyways, so he's just met Christ. How do you react to that? It is extremely natural that the first thing he would do would rush to get a tricorder. It is extremely natural that he would disbelieve for so much of the episode. Now here's, here's something interesting. And I think this is one of the reasons I do actually like this episode. I know I'm kind of skipping to the end here, but bear with me for a second. Worf is presuming that he must have specific faith. That he needs to, to, to look at something. Because that's just the way he is. It's the way he's been raised. What he finds at the end of this episode is, is a more of an appreciation of the point of blind faith. Now, I, I probably shouldn't use that terminology because it sounds like I'm being derogatory. I swear I'm not. It's not the intent. It's just front-loaded versus back-loaded, right? So what I mean by that is Worf is like, oh, here's Kalos. Let's make sure it's Kalos, okay? Tell me the story. How does, By the way, how does Kalos know this story that Worf told in a prayer when he was a boy? The only way I can make that make sense is the clerics must have, he, Worf must have told the clerics, who then told him. Otherwise, this makes no sense at all. It's probably one of the only actual serious flaws in the episode as far as logic is concerned. Anyways, <clears throat> so, it's, it's, it's you. Okay, let's, let's do all these tests. Let's do all these tests to figure out if it's you. Okay, having done all the pre-work, now I believe, right? So that's backloaded faith, right? But then at the end of the episode, he finds out that Kalos is a fraud. So he considers that, and he considers it, and he thinks about it, and he says, okay. And he approaches it from the other angle. I believe in the concept of Kalos, in the ideology. And he actually does. Remember, the whole point of how Kalos is generally being presented here is internal honor, not external. What I, what I usually refer to as real honor versus fake honor. And so Worf actually does believe in real honor. You'll notice as, a part, of, as part of this episode, he is offered a place at the, at the right-hand man of the person who's going to conquer the Empire. That's actually something that he is straight up offered. And for the first time, it's not because of manipulations. It's not because of machinations or politics or connections or any of the other bullcrap. It's just because he's a good man. For the first time amongst Klingons, he is offered a position of power on the behest of his internal honor, his real honor, as opposed to fake honor. That's powerful. You can see why he is then so ardent when he goes to Gowron in the very next scene. So, this then leads to 
his, his revelation, his idea of, okay, I'm going to believe in this ideal, and I think we can make this work going forward, that the Klingon people will have a spiritual leader to help guide them going forward. Now, this is, this is when we're going to start getting into topics that I don't want to talk about. So let's just go ahead and say, uh, let's, let's rewind. Let's put that off for a bit. Let's do a little trivia. Did you know Kalis died in 822 AD? Now, I know you're thinking, okay, who cares, Lore? Well, I heard that, and I was like, that's strange. And I decided to go looking that up, and I was actually wrong. But also right, Charlemagne died in 814 AD. A few years off, but that is a hell of a coincidence. I'm not saying it's deliberate. In fact, I have almost no doubt that the writers didn't do that on purpose. But at the same time, I could see more doing something like that. Just a little nod. Charlemagne, one of the biggest, largest-scale emperors Earth has ever known. I know there's some debate on that. We've got Khan over there, Mr. Temujin, you know. Or how you pronounce it. And of course, we've got Alexander and blah, blah, blah. But I would say Charlemagne's up there. <laughs> he kind of just ran over Western Europe, you know. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. 814, nice little bit. Um, here's another little bit. There's this bit where Gowron... Actually, hang on, rewind. There's a bit where Worf is doubting Kalis earlier in the episode. And it takes him days before he finally approaches this like a Klingon. He challenges him to a fight. Kalis fights back. Now, this is, the, this is the other logical flaw of the episode. Because we can't reveal that Kalis is a fake yet, Kalis has to basically pull that fight to a draw. Worf is a really good fighter, especially with Klingon weapons. Now, granted, he's not fighting to kill, but still, Worf's really good. Later on, Galron will effortlessly defeat Kalis in, in just like less than a minute. Whereas Worf can't manage to push him to such a level. That doesn't line up for me. What would have made more sense is if Worf basically didn't challenge him to actual combat at all. Or something. Because you notice when Koroth sees Galron challenge him to combat, he freaks out. Like, oh god, no, wait. When Worf does it, it's like, eh, whatever. Anyways. <clears throat> so, I do like how there's, there's a bit... This is interesting to me, Okay. There's this bit where uh, Crusher and the crew are discussing what he what he could be. He could be an, uh, a coalescent life form like Aquiel, because all, all, all winter will be remembered by that episode, right? It could be a shapeshifter. It could be any number of things. You notice they never of of the options they never mention clone, cute, but they mention all sorts of things he could be. Then Worf says it could actually be him. Riker then is like, excuse me, Mr. Worf, I cannot believe the guy I just escorted to Cargo Bay 8 is supernatural. That irritates me. First of all, the definition of supernatural is, okay, the ap- applied definition of supernatural, not the literal definition, but the applied definition is something that is fake, basically, or, or beyond what should be known or accepted. Okay, Riker, you have been a Q. You've literally had the power of the Q. You've encountered the Borg, you've encountered shapeshifters, you've encountered coalescent beings and energy beings and two-dimensional beings. You have encountered beings who exist on a slightly different plane who time travel to eat people's souls. Riker, get off your horse. Second thing that irritates me about that scene, it's the usual argument that is used to destroy faith. 
No, seriously. You probably don't know this about me, but I am extremely tolerant and understanding of other people within limits. Basically, as long as you're within the bounds of acceptability, we cool. That's, that's as far as I'm concerned. Whatever you think, whatever you feel, whatever you believe, that's on you. That's, that's part of you and who you are. Whether you came to it first and then had consequence, or whether you had consequence and came to it, doesn't matter. That's on you. And I'm down with that, okay? But one of the things that irritates me is when people in a very derogatory and frankly negative way try to destroy any attempt of any kind of faith by basically saying in a way that implies, oh, you're just crazy. And this is what Riker does. Because the usual method of doing this is sub... sub um, sub uh, that's the wrong word. <sighs> Comparing the nature of the mundane with something that is claimed to be supernatural. The way Riker says this is, is the indicator here. I, I can't believe the man I just escorted to Cargo Bay 8 is totally careless. Because, all of, because of the way he's saying that, in addition to his obvious derogatory tone, he is implying that one of those things is acceptable and one of those things is not. And there's no actual argument there, and that's part of what pisses me off about this. All it is is pointing and laughing in a slightly more sophisticated manner. So, slap to Riker. Meanwhile, uh, Gowron shows up, finally. It's actually Gowron's last showing on TNG. Next time he'll show up, will be over on DS9, where he will be there until Season 7, believe it or not. Anyways, <clears throat> so Gowron shows up, finally. He's like, hey, yeah, so uh, this, this can't happen. This is, this is horrible. And Worf's like, what do you mean? Because Gowron, as much as he has many, many issues... He's got a pretty good head, politically speaking. He has a pretty... He can ride the wave of politics probably better than most Klingons can. Possibly all Klingons. He's really good at that. He's not that good at being an initiator. I, I gave that theory over on DS9. But he is good at keeping up with trends. And he looks at this like, it, it, like exactly what it is. This is a civil war in the brewing. And that's where we get into the religious and political side of things. Because if Jesus Christ, actually the real person who really is the Son of God or whatever, actually showed up and was like, hey, and he just wanted to be cool because it's him, I guarantee you there would be war with 100% certainty. I, I bet most of you are just nodding at me like, yeah. Because there's going to be people who are going to want to use that for their own ends. Korath, in this case, by the way. There's going to be people who disagree with each other on whether it's true or not. doesn't matter how much evidence is given. It really doesn't. Uh, one way or the other, I might add. Even if he was a fraud, people would still believe. And even if he was real and could prove it, people would still disbelieve. No matter what you do, that's going to happen. And those kind of disagreements tend to lead to conflict, which could probably lead to out-and-out war. Now, that's in real life. We're not Klingons. And the scenario I just posited, he's not here to, to conquer or anything. Kales is trying to conquer. He specifically wants to rule a new Klingon empire. In addition to the fact that he's got the backing of the church. That's not cool. Gowron very correctly identifies that this is a man manipulation. That this is Korath trying to seize power. Based on evidence, it's probable that, that Korath and the clerics are trying to seize power 
for what they believe to be the greater good. Like, this isn't a, a, a typical, ah, I shall rule on high, a sultan, but rather more of a, the Klingon Empire is corrupt, we need to correct it kind of a thing. Still problematic, but it's, it's better than, you know, just your typical Duras kind of a grab. So, Gowron pretty much sees through all of this. And, of course, he also mentions how Worf is being specifically singled out because Worf, A, has great weight in the Empire, and he does, and he always will, all the way through DS9. Even after his discommendation, he still has weight in the Empire. And B, there's the fact that Kern sits on the Council, his brother. The House of Moog is one of the leading houses of the entire Empire. Think about that for a second. So, of course, they would want Worf on their side. And, ironically, that is actually what they get. Then, Gowron ruins this all by basically in trying to recruit Worf to his side. Gowron's already thinking of this as a versus kind of a situation. The Civil War has basically already started, is what I'm trying to say. And Gowron's already picked his side and is already trying to man up for it. And I don't blame him. In his position, I would be trying to get as many allies and recruits as I possibly could, and specifically trying to destroy the credibility of my enemy. Just from a purely political perspective, that is the correct move. You'll notice when he goes to challenge Kalos, Kalos has good, broad, sweeping answers, but not specific answers, which would be a very powerful move if not for the fact they knew the frickin' story from Worf. If they presented that the whole episode, that'd be neat, but whatever. He strikes to the core of the issues, and then he challenges Kalos, which is his right, by the way. Under Klingon law and tradition, and just straight culture, that's correct. That's even right. Garon has every, every right to go ahead and pull a sword and just try to, to kill Kalos. It is Worf who prevents him from killing Kalos, which Garon accepts because he's already made his point. Greatest warrior ever, uh-huh. Which brings me to an interesting point. Why is Kalos so crap in combat? I mean, he, he's able to take off an Iconian's arm later. <laughs> Points if you get it. So, Worf then comes up with the third option. That's not true. First, first off, he goes after Korath, and he says, you're going to tell me the truth, or I'm going to kill you right now. I like that. I really do. It is very Klingon, and he would be in so much trouble. Oh, God, he would be in so much trouble if he did that. Killing a visiting dignitary that he brought on board. But under Klingon customs and rules and cultures, he is absolutely correct in doing that. You will tell me this now. Okay. So, they admit it. He's a clone. Whee! Actually, real quick, just real quick, trivia thing. Gowron tells this whole story about you cannot stand against the... Or, excuse me, Kalos tells this whole story to Gowron that you cannot stand against the wind. In DS9, there's an episode called Tacking into the Wind. I'm not going to say anything else. I just wanted to draw attention to that. that that's cute. Also written by Moore, by the way. Anyways... So then, the third option is posited. Now, this is actually interesting, because there's a very brief throwaway line, which really made me go, huh. Korath insists that Kalos needs to be actual emperor, in charge of the empire. And he even has a line that says, the title is meaningless without power. Yeah, that's Korath's motivations right there laid bare. Gowron was right, this is a power play. I can presume, as I already did, that it's for, you know, noble intent, but this is a power play. He is trying to usurp Gowron and correct the course of the Klingon Empire. Funnily enough, the corruption of the Klingon Empire is going to be a very regular theme across all of Deep Space Nine. Well, more like four-sevenths of it, but still, you get the idea. 
So third option, spiritual leader instead of political leader. Okay. That itself is a huge threat. Because what you've just done is you have ratified his position as, as the, the heir to Kalis. They are going to be all honest about him. He's a clone. But we're going to recognize him as emperor. And in so doing, we're going to acknowledge his position at the head of Klingon society, if not Klingon government. The problem is political power is by its nature intangible. It's not like, you know, instead it's more like uh, perceptions, um, the ability to tell someone something and influence them, or convince them, or make them do something because of either consequence or association or money or whatever. It's all intangible stuff, right? And someone who has been acknowledged as the spiritual leader of the empire, they have just been put into a position of tremendous political power. This, I think, is why Gowron is so hesitant to, to accept this, because otherwise it seems like an easy answer. Because what he is doing is empowering someone who is effectively his enemy, his political rival. He goes along with it for two reasons, I think. First and most importantly, he is supporting Kalis, not Koroth. And Kalis, as he can tell, doesn't really have any political aspirations. The clerics, they'll get a little bit of boost on this one, but they won't actually be a direct threat. Okay. Second reason, better to go ahead and get ahead of this to ride the wave, which is something Garon's very good at, rather than to try and oppose it directly. Because if he poses directly, it's civil war. Bamf. Done. If he goes ahead of it, well, then he can go ahead and maintain the enemy that he knows in a position where he can keep an eye on him. So Garon's choice was really the correct one there. This is... Uh... An interesting episode to talk about, and I think this is, I, I believe, one of the first times I've really discussed faith in the TNG series. It's actually funny. Several of the creators mentioned that they could have never done this for any character other than Worf, because it had to be Alien, because of, because of the Roddenberry box, which I just find amusing in its own right. I'm reminded, if I may, there's this episode in Babylon 5 where each of the alien races gets to showcase their specific religion to the others. And it gets to the end of the episode, and they're like, so what are the humans doing? And so Sinclair is there, and he, and there's just this line of all these people from all these different faiths across the earth. And he introduces them one by one. This is such and such believes this. This is such and such who believes this. It was actually a really cool scene. And I just wanted to make that comparison really quick. <laughs> I guess I'm not going anywhere with this. I hope you enjoyed I'll see you next time.